What's interesting about the way that we have structured things in the practice lab is that they're often not role plays in the context of you as seller and your partner as prospect, in part because that's really hard to do when you're all from different companies and don't understand, right? But also because, as you've talked about, Andy, some of these are just human skills that are directly transferable to selling. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jordana Zeldin. Jordana is the founder of Spring Training and co-founder of The Practice Lab. And in our conversation today, we talk about Jordana's new venture to help sellers improve their selling performance, and it's called The Practice Lab. It's an innovative approach to helping sellers learn how to improve. We dig into the distinction that Jordana draws between training and practice and in the context of helping sellers upskill and why sellers need more practice and perhaps less training. She takes us through how the practice lab is set up and how sellers use it to improve. And we explore why most sales coaches aren't trained to be practice coaches. We dive into what it means to be a practice coach and how that's different from all the other types of coaches that we have in our sales organizations. Now, we get into all this and much, much more, but before we get to Jordana, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could also leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing, so thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jordana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. You too. Like I said to you the first time we talked on the phone, you're one of these podcast hosts where I find myself like yelling with agreement. In, oh. <laughs> into, into my phone, so it's good to actually as be able to talk. To, as opposed to calling me an idiot or something like that. That's nice. No, it's like, it's like hallelujah, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's many people who probably think I'm an idiot, but whatever. Sure. Um, I, yeah, can't please everybody. Look, you know, I think that you're probably not doing very exciting work unless you have people that disagree with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got trolls. I've got yeah, I've got some people on LinkedIn that just are convinced I'm just a raving lunatic and an idiot and don't know what I'm talking about. So, hey, hi, yeah, they believe the secret. Social, yeah, social media. <laughs> I was gonna say they believe that they believe the secret to great selling is to be salesy, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, there's just there's, you know, certain people just you know, they just something about me that doesn't resonate with them. I've got like. Two in particular, uh, that, that fortunately I, I don't even have to respond to them in most cases because everybody else on the comment thread will respond to them for me. So that works out well. You've got yeah. your protectors, yeah, your champions. Well, I wouldn't say protectors, just yeah, people that defenders, <laughs> people that uh, see the world in a similar fashion, I guess. So, yeah. all right. So, uh, first question for you now. Are you a fan of the Canaries? I don't know who they are. Oh, see? Now, you failed a basic test. Major. Yeah, I'm major making a lot test. of haters myself all, here. Yeah. Everybody knows I'm a big soccer fan. Oh, And right. in the town where you went to college. Oh, shoot, the Norwich Canaries? Well, that's a whole other story, <laughs> okay. Andy, the okay. Canaries. Well, okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was actually, so yes, I went to college in England in a, in a little city called Norwich, about an hour and a half northeast of London. And I was there 
the year that the Canaries moved up to the Premier League? Premier League. Yep. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now we're now we're speaking the same language. I have they've not been, followed their trajectory since I since. I well, they've been on the down down several times. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been relegated and promoted several times. But I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, I mean they're an interesting team. I'm sure you know, people listening to this are fascinated by this, but they're they're you know they're owned by the Martha Stewart of the UK. Who is that? Who are you talking about? Her name is like Delia Smith. I think. Oh yeah. Oh God. It's, yeah. It feels honestly the life in the UK feels like another lifetime ago. I mean, when I was in college, so I was majoring in film and American studies. And I was at scheduled an university. I thought at an English university. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, I, and I was scheduled in my career to be a theater director. I mean, that, that's what I was doing in college. And when I, mm. when I graduated and I moved back to New York City, uh, that was the plan. So what went wrong? Uh, what went wrong? Well, um, <laughs> what went right? I, well, you know, a lot of things. I think I realized that putting on productions in the context and within the bubble of a university setting where everything is provided to you, the funds, mm -hmm. the, the space, the the actors, it's just a, it's a heavier lift in the city. But, um, you know, my, my entire growing up was marked with a sense of, that I would be doing something creative, you know, so I was theater directing for a while. And then I found myself uh, running a nonprofit arts organization and eventually moved into mentoring and developing uh, emerging visual artists in New York City. Mm -hmm. And my kind of move, accidental move really into uh, sales came when a venture-backed tech startup that wanted to transform the art world, my world at the time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, was looking to build its sales team. Huh. And the company was buzzy and exciting and there was kombucha on tap <laughs> and of luxury course. notebooks in the closet. And how, I how said – how could how could there not be right? And I was curious, right. and, and I said, well, "Where do I where do I sign up?" And so began a very uncomfortable relationship with selling. I would say early on. I think it always is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I worry about the people that that say that it wasn't uncomfortable that they just took to it. It's like, yeah, let's let's analyze that for a second because yeah, yeah, I I think the the struggle the first few years is is. Indicative of the fact that you're aware that what you're doing is is <laughs> counterintuitive. Well, you know, what's so interesting, Andy, is my evolution within sales as a salesperson and you know now as a sales coach has been to understand selling at its best as very intuitive. But early on, of course, like so many of us, um, I felt really yucky doing it. And I thought that it was about deception or manipulation, about mm -hmm. pressure, and that wasn't who I was. And I didn't have anybody for the first year or so to educate me that it could be otherwise. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've written about uh, a mentor that, yeah, came along at sort of the right time and said, hey, it's okay to be you. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 there were, I mean, there were a number of things that really changed my relationship to sales. Had he not come along, I would have I would, we would not be having this conversation. This would not be my field of choice. But, um, you know, he came along and said, it's okay to be you. He came along and helped us to understand that the very kind of exclusive and wealthy prospects that we were calling into were no better than us. In essence, like we were enough and had a right to own and, and guide and steer these conversations. Um, but very powerfully, he also helped to uh, transform the, the culture of our team by 
turning it from a place where <laughs> we didn't have a lot of training. There weren't a lot of um, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of skill support, but also selling was this really private activity. We literally made an appointment in a phone booth within our startup office and like sold alone, which mm-hmm. actually I'm aware is what a lot of most sellers who are working remotely are doing. Yeah. Sort of always been that way. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you talk about the importance of, you know, creating a support system, but it's, it's, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's still you against the world. You know what though? I mean, I think, if when I try to pinpoint, like, why did this go from being such a hard job to such an easy job for me at the time? You know, why did it go mm-hmm. from feeling like a team I wasn't sure where that I wanted to be on to like a team I wanted to be on forever? Why did I go from feeling like not so confident in my life doing this work to exhilarated in my life doing this work? Mm-hmm. And part of it, I think, was the fact that selling became in some ways, and this might sound weird, like, a community effort. And I don't mean that we were all like working on the same deals together. No, but I mean that we were publicly in front of one another pitching for all to hear, right? We were Mm -hmm. failing on the the sale in the pit. Sure, We were failing. We were stumbling. If we screwed up, everybody heard. But our sales leader, Greg, he was very proactive about very publicly giving feedback, right? Like I'd get off a call. He'd be like, Jordana, that thing, you know, and, and all of a sudden, like by way of his leading with this very public way of helping us to grow, started to allow us to attune our ears to what each other were doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing at that because it's, it's, or smiling at it because it's, yeah, my first job in the, on the sales floor this is pre-cell phone days. We shared yeah. a phone. So wow, that's very, very intimate. <laughs> very intimate. So it's two of us that shared a phone. Our desks were, you know, cheek by jowl. Yeah. And yeah, we basically took turn on the phone. So, so you we heard, had the, you heard each there. other. Yeah. Oh, you're li- <laughs> you had no choice but to listen <laughs> to what was going on. And fortunately, we sort of tried, we tried to arrange it. So it was like, you know, more senior person with the less experienced person side by side. Uh, so, yeah, the guy I was saying next to had about had about a year or so of experience more than I did. Um, he was he was really good on the phone, mm-hmm. uh, which is good to listen to. Yeah, I bet but you yeah, were able to steal uh, a lot from him, right? Uh, no, not so much from him. His from a style standpoint, yeah, very very. Diametrically opposed to mine. Um, okay. And the whole point is people succeed in different ways, though. I mean, he was, he just had different personality type and he was uh, smooth and slick, and I am neither of those. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's the type of guy that, you know, he'd go to bars to meet girls. I, I was far outside my comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the other thing, too, is like you really start to realize in listening to each other on a team how stylistically how different everybody is, right? Like we all have our signature ways of speaking. But I think like developing that, that there's value in developing that awareness and, you know, by way of listening to people being almost like being given other suggestions or other pathways to approach your work. Well, I think it puts the lie to, at least in my mind, I'm a little more out there in this this perspective, is the lie to the fact 
that a sales team can adopt a single methodology for sales mm-hmm. and for selling because I believe, and I write about it in my new book, is that you know we're we're all the sum of all of our experiences and all of our influences. And yes, we work within a framework that a company puts together, but we're basically if there's five million salespeople in the United States, yeah, there's five million sales processes. Yeah. And five million sales methodologies. Yeah. That yeah, I think it's one of the issues that we're confronting is that you know, this movement toward conformity and compliance. Yeah, among the sales world is the managers are un, uncomfortable with people that aren't acting a certain way. And I think it shows. I think that's true. I think that's true. It's interesting too, you know, as I was thinking about in advance of this conversation today, and it's something I think about a lot, like what does it mean to bring yourself to your selling anyway? I do think that it becomes easier to do the more secure you are in who you are as a human being. And that in some ways that that comes with age as well, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm, that's true of life in general, right? I mean, yeah. as your perspective changes as, as you get older. Yeah. I'm substantially older than you are. And yeah, I'm sure my perspective on things is, is quite different, but, but you have to learn. And I advocate again in, in my new book is advocate that, that you have to start from this perspective early in your career that no one really cares about you, but you, Mm. and no one will care as much about you as you do. And so you have to take responsibility about for, you know, being intentional and mindful about how you sell, understanding what's going to work for you as opposed to just being a follower. Well, also to this idea of relationship, you know, I know there are people who talk about like relationship doesn't matter, which is utter bullshit, of course, because no matter what kind of seller you are, even if you don't consider yourself to be, you know, there's like challenger relationship, like what you are in with this person is a relationship. And part of what I've come to realize as I've been, you know, traveling in this world is If you can acknowledge that to be the case, then a big part of your job as a seller in this relationship with another human being is to meet your prospect's fundamental human needs. Because my sense is that in relationship, the needs that our prospects have from us are the same ones that they have out there in the world, namely to feel seen, right, heard, (laughs) understood, understood, understood. and and actualized. I mean, take the whole Maslow's uh, whole hierarchy. Right. And there are ways, of course, you know, as we sell and ways to grow awareness around how we can, behaviors even, that we can do to help to give. Oftentimes selling can feel like a take, but I think the best selling is a give to give that experience to our prospects irrespective of whether or not they buy. Well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. that this is, to your point about the relationships is and. You know, without getting on the usual rant I get on this about the people who say it's not important, is, you know, I, my theory is that those who are sort of the advocates, most strident advocates for saying that relationships or connection with your buyer is not important, are actually those people who are sort of most skilled at doing it. And to the point where they probably don't even realize that's what they're doing. Right, right. <laughs> and so I always find it ironic, you know, as one prominent person been on the show that yeah we got into it about likabilities likabilities yeah yeah same thing bullshit likability is not important i'm like hmm. it's 
curious because you're very likable. <laughs> that's that's the appeal of your brand is you're likable. I mean, not to get too, you know to go too far down like the the relationship track, but you know, I'll say I think one of the things that a lot of sellers tell me that they struggle with is this idea of having to kind of build, you know, quote unquote rapport up front. And like there's a section where like the rapport building happens where they have to talk about the weather or sports or and no, like that is rapport is not the same thing as relationship. And and for those sellers for whom that like small talk and stuff doesn't come naturally, that's okay because of course relationship comes through our credibility and our investment in in helping our prospects discover in some ways their needs and our ability to meet them. Yeah. Well, I think that it's become harder for the newer cohort of people in sales to, to indulge in that relationship building and rapport building because it's, it's a different method of communication they've been socialized with. It's not message based. It's synchronous as opposed to asynchronous. And yeah, there's time for asynchronous communications, but, you can't escape synchronous in sales. That's and I think right. that we don't spend enough time, we don't invest enough time with new people coming into sales to help them get over that. Not get over it, but help them learn and 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 become more proficient at synchronously communicating. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about learning, Andy. What What are some of the ways that you think sales leaders and sales managers can help newer sellers become better at more, more synchronous communication? Well, I think it's, it's just investing the time, right? We make an assumption generally in sales that we bring people in. And, and I like to say that, you know, in every role that you take on in life, there's two dimensions to it. There's sort of the human aspect of it. And then there's the role itself. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about being a parent, a spouse, uh, you know, whatever job you have, is if you there's a certain human element of that that you need to be proficient at in order to be good at the other. And we bring young people into sales and just assume that they know these things and are proficient at these things that are sort of basics are human skills, how to connect with someone, how to build rapport, how to how to be curious. Right. Right? How to how to make sure you you truly understand the person you're talking to and make them feel heard. We just assume that we know how to do that. The sellers know how to do it. And, you know, many don't. Well, you know, it's so interesting, this idea of us like assuming that, that people know things because this, this maps a little bit or a lot (laughs) to some, some of the work that I've been doing recently around the value of practice. I mean, what's so interesting to me and what feels a little broken about, how we in sales think about skill development is that we tell people things. They read LinkedIn or books or listen to podcasts. They absorb the knowledge, right, from mm-hmm. quote-unquote training. And then the expectation is that they're going to turn that knowledge into action in absence of the thing that helps performers in every single other discipline out there develop, which is practice. You know, imagine learning, you know, being trying to learn the violin, and like listening to a podcast on it or learning tennis and like watching a a PowerPoint presentation. Right. And a big part of a kind of missing piece that I've found and, and a big part, I am, I'm kind of an accidental co-founder of a sales, a new sales training community called the practice lab. And we were going to talk about that, but go ahead, bring it up. Yeah. Well, 
this is this is a one of the problems that it sets out to solve is like industry wide sellers are expected to absorb knowledge turn it into action and get their at bats in on the phone with prospects when the stakes are highest and that's crazy <laughs> there are there are very few opportunities status quo like if we're talking about industry wide that sales teams and and managers really create for reps to get their reps in yeah. Well, I mean, so it's interesting. So let's, let's, let's talk about that because you use the analogy of athletics, uh, you know, on your website and so on about, you know, athletes, this idea of practice versus training, um, which is actually really an American speak because in the rest of the world, what we call practice is called training. But anyway, right. um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> is it gets back to what I was just started talking. There's sort of two components to this. You know, let's take athletes, for instance, is on one level, they need to acquire fitness and sort of basic rudimentary skills around, you know, whatever their sport is. But then they need to be able to apply those, the fitness and the skills in a competitive setting. Right. Or in a team setting and then a competitive setting. And that's where it gets back to what I was talking about. I said to me, and from a sales standpoint, the analogy to the fitness and skills are sort of these basic human skills I was talking about, the ability to learn how to connect and build rapport and build trust, uh, you know, ability to deploy your curiosity to, to really reach a level of understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of those basic human skills. That's sort of like the equivalent to the fitness part of it. And then the other part was, yeah, how do I deploy that in a competitive setting when it matters? Well, it's so interesting that that you talk about the the importance of kind of practicing these human skills because I think it is very important. And I'm also aware of the fact that if we're applying this like athlete inspired model to sales practice, you know, like something a lot of uh, like sales leaders will say to me is something like, "Well, Jordana, you know, we just want our want our sellers to be more empathetic." It's like, okay, what how, what are you asking them to do? Right. And of course, there are things that we can do to practice and refine our skills and empathy. But part of at least how we're approaching the skills development piece around some of these human ideas in the lab is by turning them into what we call kind of like micro behaviors in a way. So, for example, like let's say you want your prospect to have the experience of feeling seen and heard in discovery. What's something that you can do, a a behavior that you can do to help them to feel that? And one thing that I know can be really transformative in a a kind of new way of listening for sellers is to periodically summarize what you've heard back, right? Like through your own lens. So if they've shared a challenge with you rather than just moving on to your next question or God forbid, moving on to your pitch, right? And how you can help sounds to me like, right? Or it sounds like it's been a really tough year. You know, your your sellers haven't been, whatever the, the thing that you've learned is, little micro summaries along the way, which force you to really listen. And then at the end, take all those, those micro summaries and turn them into a really compelling narrative macro summary of the story of what you've heard. And that becomes the pivot point to talking about how your product might be able to help or sharing some ideas or sharing some customer success stories. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, generally agree. I think that that, and again, plugging my new book in the new book, I talk about this is that oftentimes though that falls short of 
the level of understanding that's really required, though. Because the assumption is that if you feed back to the buyer what you heard, you're assuming that the buyer really understands the scope and the breadth of their challenge or really understands you know, potential outcomes they could achieve or understand what those are. And so what I would add to that, which I think is a, a great practice for sellers, is when, when you finish doing your summary, whether it's your micro-summary or your, your wrap-up at the end, mm-hmm. and you get the buyer to nod their head... You then ask, so what are we missing? Yeah, definitely. That's vital. I always I say, what else feels important is, a, is yeah. a great question to ask too. Absolutely. So don't leave it at that because, again, as, as a seller, one of the most common errors, we'll call it, is, again, this, this error of assuming. And, yeah, assuming is not understanding. And this is a big gap for most sellers is to say, yeah, I've gathered this information because, you know, we've got our playbook and in our playbook, we've got these 10 questions we ask and we ask these questions and I get the answers. And now what do I know? Well, I know this handful of information, but what do you understand? Absolutely. You don't understand. You just know something. You don't understand it until you understand the context of why this is important to the buyer and why the out- these outcomes are important. You don't understand and you can't help them till you understand and so you can't assume. You always have to ask that extra question and challenge the buyer to think some more. I'm so glad that you said that because at the end of the kind of structure that we help sellers to um, kind of use as they're coming up with their, their kind of macro summation, that question of what else feels important is vital. Vital. Yeah. Well, it's follow-up. Right, you have to have the, you have to sort of unleash your curiosity, yeah, because it's for many people. It's okay. This is what I think we need to know, and that's how we train our sellers. Yeah, this is sort of what you need to know. It's really it's what do I need to understand is really the question that's more important in order to even qualify the prospect, let alone decide how you're gonna be able to help them. Couldn't agree more. Wow, you should disagree with me. Look, no, we're so on the same page. I mean, I think that, you know, as it relates to this larger question of understanding, that's vital. And, you know, our sense, or my sense at least of, you know, however long, almost 10 years of figuring all this stuff out, is that there are still things, behaviors that sellers can do throughout the sales conversation that can help them to be more effective, feel better doing it, and help their prospect to feel better in the, in the sales interaction. And that's a big part of at least in the practice lab because not every aspect of selling can be practiced in an you know an athlete inspired way. But what we've tried to do is we've broken down the entire sales conversation and identified well what are these practicable behaviors that when executed well can really move the needle in a significant way when you know, combined together. And the, that's what we've identified. Those are the skills that we've identified as the ones that can be can be practiced in the way that the science of behavioral change and skill development tells us is most effective, which is when we're just at the edge of our abilities, stumbling, making mistakes, failing, doubling back, correcting, iterating, and trying again. So what are those? Give us some uh, examples. 
Yeah, yeah. So just for a little bit of context, because the, the practice lab itself, the idea can be a little abstract, but what it's become is, you know, a sales training community, a quarterly community where every week sellers from different companies come together to learn and practice one of these new, uh, not new, but one of, one of these micro behaviors or these sales skills. And because as an industry, there's no shortage of explaining, right, in sales training, the actual teaching happens in advance of the lab via a lab prep video that everyone is expected to watch. It's a 10-minute video. We, we talk mm-hmm. about the skill. We demonstrate what it sounds like so that folks can show up into the lab on the same page and ready to try this stuff out. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of, the, the kind of context and, and the structure of it. And the skills vary. Um, you know, summaries is one of them, as we talked about. One is delivering a uh, collaborative meeting agenda mm-hmm. that sets the tone for openness and honesty and transparency in your selling conversations. That's our first module. How right. do you do that? What's involved? And so people watch the videos, then come to lab and do role plays? Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's for the agendas module, because that is one of the more predictable moments in the sales conversation, that practice lab is in some ways about more about scripting than most of our kind of more agility-based, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, you know, modules and skills. But what's interesting about the way that we have structured things in the practice lab is that they're often not role plays in the context of you as seller and your partner as prospect, in part because... That's really hard to do when you're all from different companies mm-hmm. and don't understand, right, the problems right. of, right, to put. Right. But also because, as you've talked about, Andy, some of these are just human human skills that are directly transferable to selling. So, for example, in our third week, we do a module on discovery called Motivate Me. And this is an opportunity when uh, sellers are practicing with their partners not to ask the kinds of questions they would need to ask in order for a fake prospect to buy their product, but rather to talk about a real change that their partner is wanting to make in their lives. Right. And to use a rubric of the types, that the type of understanding, deep understanding that, that they need mm-hmm. in order to frame how they're asking their questions and what types of questions they're asking so that they have that experience of being deeply curious, Right. Of another person, mm-hmm. of gathering the information that they need in order to have deeper understanding and also give their their partner deeper understanding of where they might be at with this change they want to make. And then they can bring that feeling right into their sales conversations. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's I think that's great. I mean, I think that that's you sort of hit it well on the head, is which is yeah, these skills are not these human skills aren't. Sales skills, they are human skills, right? Being curious, which is the best way to make yourself interesting to someone else is to be interested in them in a sincere, authentic way. Um, Yeah. And I talk about in the book, I give you, you know, tools you can use to practice that in just your day-to-day life. Exactly. Because the role play content, oh, sorry, go ahead, Andy. Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, we talk about a lot of these terms. Let's take curiosity, for instance, is, is... some people think it's just about you know asking questions, but 
when you think about curiosity is we use curiosity, our curiosity to navigate the world around us. Right. Because we're constantly, you know, putting ourselves in situations we've never been in before, not just in sales in real life, right? Travel to a country you've never been in before. Well, how are you going to navigate that? Well, you have to be curious. Mm-hmm. If you're not curious, chances are you didn't get on the plane in the first place. But yeah, this is curiosity. Is just again, it's, that's why it's such an important human skill. It's it's how we it's how we navigate the world around us. And it's so interesting too, in the context of like not a role play, but of practicing something like discovery outside of the context of selling. Is oftentimes what we'll hear from participants, at least from our beta a few months ago, is they're like, wow, that felt really different than how I feel in my sales discovery. And then the question is why? (laughs) Because it shouldn't. Well, actually, it shouldn't, right. But it does feel different because you're being led by your your curiosity as opposed to being led by a desire to ask specific questions, right? To which you presume oftentimes you know the answer to. Well, I mean, that, that's a challenge, too, is that so often, you know, when we're speaking to, to prospects, they, many of them articulate the same problems, and it's very easy to tune out and just go by rote and, and, you know, by what you assume the problems to be. But what's interesting is that in this exercise around discovery, when people are finding out about their partner's real changes, right, or real things they might want to buy, we'll often say, how many of you feel like you have a pretty solid sense of where they are now? And some people will be like, oh, I guess maybe. I'm not sure. I was kind of focusing on where they want to be. Or some will say, okay, how many of you have a sense of like where they, what they want? And most people usually raise their hands because the subject is the change they want to make. How many of you understand what they're getting there is going to do for them? And more hands Mm -hmm. go down. And so what we're helping, what we're doing is, you know, creating an exercise where they're, they're being led by their curiosity, but between each round of practice, we're giving them another area to consider in service of more deeply understanding. And that those areas just so happen to map to the information that we need to gather in a typical sales conversation. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's just part of it's perspective-driven, right? Is, for instance, with that about discovering topic that yeah, I could spend hours on is, but you know, this common assumption is, okay, in this sort of data-driven world is – you know, the person with the most information about the buyer is in, you know, the advantageous position. Best equipped to help them. Right. And I would say, no, not at all. I think the person who has the best understanding of the buyer is in the advantage, has the competitive advantage. Somebody just knows, yeah, they're fighting for second place. I want to I pin, kind of put a pin in a really important distinction that you just made. You gather information. It's a take. You give understanding. That's a give. And I think that that generous spirit is something that I noticed the, some of the most effective sellers have. And that is the spirit with which both in the lab and in my work with spring training, I really try to imbue the way our sellers are selling. Yeah, I, mean, I think you help contribute to understanding. I'm not sure 100% you always give understanding because I think that – in almost every situation that you're in as a seller is you're going to find that there's one thing that's more important than all the others to the buyer on which the decisions can be driven. And it's your job as a seller to understand what that is and to help the buyer get that thing that's most important to them. And 
you can help them some with the understanding of that by through the questions you ask. Absolutely. To help them broaden their understanding of their own understanding of I said the challenges they're trying to meet and the outcomes they're trying to achieve. But I really think that's you know, the understanding is a collaborative thing more so than something that sellers give. That's true. That's true. And I've I mean, there can be no understanding unless there's conversation and dialogue and listening. And, at the, you know, at the risk of being too esoteric, I think that, you know, the the distinction that I like to make in discovery that usually helps sellers to think differently about it is that difference between extracting information versus hmm. giving the experience of feeling seen, heard, understood, irrespective yep. of whether or not they buy. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. I think, is what I kind of call like a generous discovery process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact is that at the end of the day is, is buyers make their decisions in large part based on their experience in the buying process with the seller. Of you, of the seller. Exactly. That's right. Of you. And, so, so, and that maps back to the idea if they feel like their human needs are feeling seen, heard, and understood are being met by you, then that makes them, you know, plus if your solution, blah, 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 does all the things that they need, you know, but that, but that of course, is going to make them more likely to want to work with you. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't even do everything that they need. That's that, That's the point I started driving at before is if you know what's most important to them, there's always, as I said, there's always something that's more important than all the others. And if you understand what that is... Oftentimes in sales, you find out that, yeah, we don't need to do everything else or we don't need to be as as good at everything else if we can really be good at what's most important to them. You won't get any pushback from me there, Andy. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. You can push back on other stuff, but that's fine. I'm kind of pushing um, back here and there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, but yeah, I'd love to have you come back because... Fortunately, we got off to a late start today recording this. I know. Um, but yeah, we'll make sure we, we do it again because uh, love to learn more about the practice lab and uh, the whole concept you talked about, practice coaches. Yeah, I had a lot of things I wanted to ask about that. So in the meantime, though, if people want to learn more about the practice lab, how can they do that? Okay. So the Q1 cohort is already underway, but if you're wanting to learn more and join the waitlist mm-hmm. for subsequent cohorts, the place to go is thepracticelab.co. Mm-hmm. My website is under construction as a sales trainer and consultant. So LinkedIn is the very best and brightest place to find me. Perfect. All right. Well, Jordana, thank you so much for joining me. And like I said, we'll do it again. Thanks so much, Andy. A true pleasure. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Jordana Zeldin, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.